When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, for once, I genuinely have been away for a couple of days, so I can ask this question um, with real intent. How are you, my friend? I'm, I'm very good. We've had a full house of guests, uh, football season's back and fo- football finance bingo is back because we've got Barcelona with its payday loans, we've got Chelsea with ludicrously long contracts um, and of course the transfer market is is providing fun and games non-stop. So yes, it's, it's great to be back. Yeah, we should be dealing with all those stories on uh, Thursday, Kieran and our slap up, catch up the news pod. But today it's questions. And I've got a question for you, first of all, Kieran. Do we know, uh, we're speaking on Sunday morning, do we know the current whereabouts of Moises Keishido? Um, No, I I suspect he'll be at Stamford Bridge at 4pm with two shirts, one of which will be blue and one of which will be red um, and will be marched on the pitch at half time, either to cheers or tomatoes. <laughs> um, so, so we'll have to have to wait and see. It, it, it's a it, it's it's a strange one. It's it's ridiculous to think that Brighton Hove Albion could be selling one of the players for the top ten transfer figures of all time. The, you know, the, the world has gone slightly potty. How much did you pay for him? Oh, uh, four million. Wow, really. That's well, right. it, it's it's just Liverpool and Chelsea both seem to be channeling the spirit of Peter Ridsdale because it's it's meant to be the selling club that says no, that's not enough money. Whereas, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it seems that Brighton have gone well. I don't know, sixty-five, seventy, and both Liverpool and Chelsea. No, he's worth more than that. You, you ask ask for more. So, to which of course all the all the uh, FFP conspiracy theories are coming out now, saying why why Chelsea want to pay so much for him? Must be FFP because everything is FFP, Kieran. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm I'm about to board a train for Manchester as soon as we finish recording, um, and I've had quite a few requests on social media to go. How can Chelsea do that? I'm, I'm uh, not sure how that can be done. Yeah. So I, I might spend my journey, assuming I can get a seat, um, putting together some spreadsheets or two to say, well, actually, uh, there's more to this than meets the eye. As always, happens to be the case. Yeah, I people have spoken in the past, Kieran, about you know. One of the reasons I think this podcast works is that you and I are similar in, in background and, and temperament to some degree, but you're perhaps considered more chipper and optimistic, and I'm considered more down the Eeyore 
end of the scale. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything that illustrates your optimism more than the fact you're attempting to travel from Brighton to Manchester on a Sunday by train. I, I really, I, <laughs> I, I doff my grumpy donkey hat to you. So I really do. <laughs> Our first question comes from you'll be back for Wednesday's recording, won't you? Hopefully, <laughs> uh, potentially. <laughs> Our first question comes from Alan Day, which is what a lovely name Alan Day is. Um, and this, I mean, he knew when he asked his question, oh, was, oh, he's a doozy, he knew it was going to get answered. Um, Alan says, Which country are the financial world champions? Taking into account tournaments, friendlies, other income, etc. I'll leave the time span for Kieran to decide. As I suspect, it may be spreadsheet heaven, but I had a twenty-year period in mind. Did you? Did you go for the twenty years, Kieran? Well, w- what I've done is that I've done a twentieth-century one, and okay. I've done a twenty-first-century one um, because I thought that this this question from Alan deserves uh, a proper amount of attention of and a bit of TLC. Um, certainly, as far as the twentieth century was concerned, it was very much Brazil. Uh, you know, oh, okay. they, they won the World Cup on what three, four occasions. Um, they uh, exported players. They had a very high. Uh, they they were able to effectively become sort of a bit like the the Harlem Globetrotters of international football, mm. in the sense that if you if you had a new stadium or if you wanted to have a uh, you know, end of season friendly and guarantee a sellout you'd invite Brazil to play. So the Brazilian football authorities, as CFB, as, as we know from those, those famous shirts, um, they said, well, yeah, okay, we're, we're willing to do this, but you know, we want financial compensation. The other big issue as far as um, the, the finances are concerned is that the, the two biggest export countries in terms of football in, in the world historically have been from South America, uh, in, in Brazil and Argentina. And Brazil were very much sort of the winners of that in the, uh, in, in the 20th century. So, so that's, that's where we were up to, to the year 2000. Since 2000, I've been looking at the numbers and looking at some other there, – there's a very good website called CIES uh, Laboratories, which is sort of you know, nerd central – um, and the conclusion I've come to, putting everything together, is that the winners are France. Oh, which, which, mm. which, yeah, and I can tell from that sort of slight surprise yeah. in your voice. But again, you've you've got to sort of, you know, I sort of tried to sort of give a ranking. You know, how many points for getting to a, a World Cup final, or winning a World Cup, or winning Euros? Well, well, France have been very good at winning tournaments. But the other thing that France have been very good at, and I appreciate that this. They have, they've not been successful in terms of their big clubs winning European trophies, but their ability to export players is second only to Brazil. And remember, we, we've got this romantic notion, partly fueled by being effectively force-fed at every World Cup by the BBC and ITV, just how great Brazil are. Yeah, and yet you and I, you know, 1970 was my first World Cup. Yep, same as, as you. And I can still remember that fourth goal yep. of Brazil. Yeah, it, and it, it was a magnificent tournament, and they played some fantastic football. Um, and they've been sort of dining off that ever since because yeah, they, they didn't win the World Cup again until was it 1994? Was it? Yeah. And yeah, that was a pretty dreadful tournament. 
um, in, in the US. Uh, and that went to a, you know, it was a nil-nil and a penalty competition and Gabagio's you know, missing of the penalty. And, but, but it wasn't actually great football from Brazil. Um, so if you t- I, I came to the conclusion it would be France because the ability of France to export their talent. There are presently 781 French footballers playing elsewhere Whoa. in football. 700. And you think we get, we, we're sort of going, oh, Harry Kane, he's, he's gone to <laughs> Germany. Oh my God. Yeah, we're sort of, we're sort of going, isn't this, isn't this, God, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit daring, isn't it? And the attitude of French players is, oh, yeah, they, they just, yeah. And, and to be fair, they're born with a shrug. Yeah, as I go into my Terry Collier routine here, um, <laughs> and and they just they just take it on board. So so, but also the quality of the the French playing exports is is absolutely sensational. They've delivered in terms of major tournaments as a nation, and their only sort of you know their negative is that PSG, which has become more of a soap opera than a football club these days, um, didn't win any. Uh, significant tournaments themselves, but overall, I think that that they supersede the the other two major runners, in my view, which will have been um, Brazil and Argentina. People say, "Well, well what about England?" Because in- English teams have been successful. There's no doubt in terms of winning the Champions League, but there's more to. Yeah, the reason for that is the Premier League's ability to to effectively, I'm not say to buy trophies, but certainly to be competitive in the transfer market and competitive in the wage market. Um, but on an international sphere, uh, you know, England, you know, runners up in the Euros in in 2021. That's about as good as it got. Uh, I presume, though, that if Alan's question had included um, leagues as well, then England mm-hmm. would England would be way out ahead, wouldn't it? The, the Premier League again over the course of this century, and certainly over the course of say, probably the last decade, it has been reasonably successful. But remember, you know, Real Madrid have won the the Champions League four times. Yeah. Um, in, in the last decade. And yeah. then you've got the, the, the Europa League has become very much Spanish as well. Um, so I think actually probably if you're going to, again, it depends how you award the points, but if I did a table in terms of uh, the trophies, I suspect Spain would still just about pip the Premier League. Oh, well, that's, that's, do you know, I have to say all the answers to this question, Kieran, were, were contrary to the ones I imagined. I do like, um, there's too many people to mention who came up with this conceit. I was one of them, obviously, but the idea of Harry Kane turning up in Germany and they say, what what shirt number would you like? And he says, he says nine. And they go, no, no what, what shirt number would you like, Harry? And he says, no, and that can go on for as long as you want. Absolutely. Basically. basically. Um, uh, our next question comes from Tim in Bangkok. Uh, no surname, so I suspect it might be another witness protection scheme <laughs> question. Uh, but Tim in Bangkok asked a question that we get asked quite a lot around pub mm-hmm. tables. It's, why don't international teams have shirt sponsors? And if they did, could, how much would they be worth? I think football, bizarrely, Kieran, must be the the last international sport, or certainly major international sport, to resist shirt sponsors. Now, I mean, once once you've seen the England cricket team have them and the England rugby team, it's, it mm. seems it seems slightly odd that football hasn't followed. Yes, um, this is to a certain extent being driven by FIFA. Ah. FIFA don't want to share commercial rights ah, okay. with individual 
countries. Uh, if you think about the success of FIFA, yes, they get huge amounts from broadcasting revenues at the FIFA World Cup. We'll be coming to that question a little bit later. Um, but they also have very good relationships uh, and they, they have sort of a, a tier one, a tier two and tier three sponsors. Now, the last thing they want to do is if they have, for example, Adidas as their tier one kit sponsors, do they want the Brazilian football club to be able to play matches? And Nike says, well, as well as being the manufacturer, we're going to sponsor the Brazilian football team. And you've got Nike in huge letters plastered across the shirts because that's going, yeah, Adidas, you know, we're not very happy with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're not willing to pay this. And and therefore, yeah, the likes of, uh, you know, the, their, their pet airline, their pet uh, banking sponsor and so on for FIFA, they will probably reduce the amount of money that they're willing to pay for FIFA, um, which means that FIFA has less money to distribute to uh, individual football associations. And remember, I think there are now 211. Mm. And uh, another way to look at that, that's yeah, a cynic. And, and we're not a cynical show. We are not. We are not a cynical show. Yeah, a cynic would say, well, yeah, that's that's less money to give to the people that vote in Gianni Infantino unopposed for another four mm. or five years. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that would, that's not good news. So, so that's, that's one contributory factor. We, we've also got the fact that we, we could end up in it with, with complications. Now, you know, we, we know as far as um, the UK is concerned, we've got you know, relatively Western liberal views with regards to gambling, with regards to alcohol, um, and so on. So therefore, could England be sponsored by Heineken or Carlsberg or uh, you know, William Hill? Y- yes, they could. But if their matches are being broadcast at the FIFA World Cup competition and you've got those countries where gambling is illegal, such as China, for example, mm. um, th- what's going to happen? Does that mean that the Chinese government would say, well, if that's the case, we aren't willing to pay for the broadcast rights? Yeah, we're not happy about that. So th- there are complications, but it is to a certain extent the last frontier, and it is a frontier which as always, if the money is right, could be breached in due course. Well, we come on to that, Kay. I think also there is another element here, and I think that the FAs of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and Republic, I think they know that there would be a huge outcry, I think, if the national shirts were to be sponsored. And I think the difference between football and other sports is that cricket fans, rugby fans, understand that Money's tighter in those sports, so they understand why those international teams would maybe look for front-of-shirt sponsors, and they wouldn't expect the national team in football to do so. If if it was, to answer the second part of Tim's question, if, for example, front-of-shirt sponsorship for England came up, how much would you be looking at, do you think? that What sort of deal would that be? Well, if, if we take a look at the likes of... Yeah, tier one clubs, the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Liverpool, and so on. They are normally looking for something in the region of forty to fifty million for a season. Um, now they're going to they, they've got three sets of kits coming out on an annual basis. They are being watched in the Champions League 
and uh, the Premier League and La Liga, realistically, you know, 60 times a season. An international team is probably going to play you know, 10 matches in a season, if, if oh, that. Okay. And, you know, if it's... If it's a, you know, I'm, I, I, this sounds patronising, but if, if it's a sort of a fairly foregone conclusion, uh, and this is no, this is no reference to Ricky Gervais's band, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. If it was a, if it's a foregone conclusion home match against Moldova, you're not going to get a huge amount of international yeah. viewing fi- yeah, figures. Yeah. So it, it, it will be linked to viewing figures. Um, I think you could have potential World Cup sponsors uh, in a world or in a World Cup qualifying competition, um, but. We we would certainly be talking eight figures, but I think you're probably looking sort of somewhere in the region of ten to twenty million a year, a sizable sum of money um, for the big countries. For the smaller countries, I think you'd be far far lower. Which is again perhaps a reason why there isn't so much pressure. Um, but I, I know that uh, Ireland's football kit used to be sponsored by three, but they mm. didn't. But so, so, you, so I, I'd go into, you know, I, I quite often get the Ireland kit or you know, other countries' kits because I'm a football kit nerd. Um, quite often you get them and they there would be the the name or the logo of the sponsor, but they wouldn't necess- they wouldn't be worn in competitive games. Yeah, yeah. Um, our next question, Kieran, comes from Nicholas Andrews Govain. Uh, and as discussed uh, previously when Nicholas has asked a question, I really hope that Nicholas Andrews Govain has a Cockney accent. Because I think a, a, a name like that, oh, Philly shaking himself, or just he's he's not impressed by double barrelled surnames. Clearly, no, no, it's just excited to hear my voice. Nicholas says we see that clubs in Spain have handball, basketball, etc. teams as part of their business model. Um, not only in Spain, Kieran, many clubs mm. across uh, Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, especially, have the same. So why have we not seen more of this in the UK? For example, you could have a Manchester City ice hockey team or a Liverpool netball team. It's a really interesting question, Kieran. But is this just historical, basically? I, I think it's it's historical. I can assure you that clubs will have looked at brand extension, as I put on my marketing hat, um, and <laughs> will and will have done the sums. Um, and simply, if you, if you take a look at Barcelona's finances, the contribution made by the uh, non-football sports is pretty insignificant um, to the overall. And in terms of profitability, which again would be a driving force, um, it's not moving the dial as such. However, I think what we are seeing, and I think there's a fair chance that this will be expanded on in due course, is the tie-ups between football clubs and esports. So you know, there oh, okay. is now, uh, you know, the, the major clubs in the Premier League do all have their esports teams, and they come out and they play in these competitions. And this this is a legacy issue. You, know, you and I, we we wouldn't pay money to watch somebody playing Fortnite in a Manchester United or a Barcelona shirt. But if you go to some of the the streaming platforms, which can be monetized. Um, that there is certainly a market, and it's a much bigger market than people give it credit for. And the prize money for winning some of these tournaments mm. can run into hundreds of thousands, and, and occasionally we're talking millions of dollars. So th- there is certainly a market there. And with electronic arts no longer having the FIFA license, 
because FIFA, I think, have probably priced themselves out of the market. You could see a, a greater willingness between football clubs and the likes of uh, electronic arts in terms of computer games, especially sports-related football games, to have that, that tie-up going forward. And it's a lot easier to fund because the, your, the talent's already there. You, 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 it's not as if you're setting up a basketball team or an ice hockey team from scratch. You need to recruit the players, you need a coach and so on. You, you don't need a coach to be good at computer games because yeah. you've been playing it since the age of six. Yeah, it's funny. I gave quite a lot of thought to Nicholas's question because, you know, Stratomice rinks to stand or open Palace, mm. really. So I, I, I thought, well, if Palace did have an ice hockey team, I would go and see it. But then I thought I would go and see it once. Yeah. And then that would be it, which I think is probably the problem for, you know, there'd be an enormous amount of initial interest and then people would forget that they're not actually ice hockey fans and then your love of the club wouldn't force you back again. <laughs> I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Malcolm Tetley. And Malcolm says, I live in Thailand. Uh, I like to think that Malcolm may have moved to Thailand in order to track down Tim in Bangkok. Yes. Um, so hopefully, luckily, we don't give out addresses. Um, again, this is an interesting one. Malcolm Tetley lives in Thailand, which has a population very similar to the UK, around 68 million, Malcolm says in brackets. Last year, the World Cup TV coverage was only confirmed the day before it started with the reason given being that the Thai broadcasters were struggling to raise FIFA's fees for coverage. They did just, in the end, but the figure quoted for Thailand was said to be in the order of £37 million when converted. Can you tell us how FIFA's broadcasting rights fees are calculated? Is it, for example, pro rata based on the population of each country? And bearing in mind that the population of the UK and Thailand are very similar, how much did UK broadcasters collectively pay for last year's World Cup, it's um, it's it's a long way of asking the question, Kieran. But it's essentially it's a really interesting question. How do FIFA calculate their broadcasting rights? Right. I spoke to our friend, the secret broadcaster. Yeah. You know, and as you know, we've now got tie ups. We've got the we we do have tie ups with uh, you know, kit manufacturing and the legal profession and and um, broadcasting. And our friend, uh, the secret broadcaster, uh, said. Uh, first of all, something which is unrepeatable about Brighton on Match of the Day last night. Um, <laughs> but, but secondly, he said, as far as the UK is concerned, it's a closed shop because of the listed events rule. So the listed events, for those listeners that are not familiar, is actually in as part of UK legislation. There are a protected set of sporting events mm. which must be made available free to air on terrestrial TV. Now, as far as the World Cup is concerned, I think my understanding, it's it's not the whole World Cup tournament. It's the opening fixture 
and the final. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that I think that is the case. Oh, so, okay. uh, so our, our friend said, "Well, the BBC and ITV have it pretty much their own way." Although we are in an era in which Channel Four uh, is now seeing itself as a disruptor, yeah. potentially Channel Five as well. So that that potential threat does mean that the BBC and ITV are paying competitive fees. And also, I think they, they want to pay just enough for the likes of Sky or Amazon to think, well, actually, we won't, we won't bother because if, if we can't show the fi- – you know, having the final is, uh, is, is one of the, the big deals. Um, and as far as the rest of the world is concerned, it is pretty much a free-for-all. And therefore, to a certain extent, it comes down to who blinks first. Uh, FIFA will say, we want to put it out to tender. We want to put it out to the highest bidder. They are at liberty to say, well, you know, we were expecting at least 20 million. You're only offering 12. You, you, can, you can go down your own end of the street and you, you can do without the, uh, the FIFA World Cup just to see if the broadcasters come back to the table. So th- there is a sort of a sort of a bit of a standoff. Uh, FIFA have been pretty successful. Now, um, Malcolm did ask how much the UK broadcasters paid, mm. and again, this is one of these things which they're, they're a little bit coy about. Um, my understanding is that uh, BBC and ITV put in a, a bid which covered the 2018 and the 2022 World Cups. I think the total paid between the two broadcasters was around about 220 million. Um, and that was, yeah, I think they got good value for money. Viewers got good value for money um, at, at, as well. So substantial amounts, but equally, you could argue this is one of the biggest tournaments in the world. Um, you compare that to how much BT Sport, now TNT, of course, are paying for the Champions League, how much the likes of Sky and, and TNT and Amazon are paying for the Premier League rights, which are you know, 1.5 billion uh, a year. Mm. Admittedly, they're getting 10 years worth of, you know, 10 months worth of coverage instead of four weeks. So it's it, it's a good deal, I think, for the licensed player. Um, and then, we, of course, we come to the Women's World Cup, and it looks as if the BBC and ITV are paying, I think, around about 8 million compared to the, the 100 to 120 that they're playing for the men's tournament. Um, although you know, the, the, anybody who watched the, the match yesterday before going to watch a match uh, will have thoroughly enjoyed the Lionesses getting to the semi-final, of course. Uh, absolutely. Congratulations. to um, I, I think the viewing figures for that Australia game are going to be huge yeah. on Wednesday. But you, you mentioned uh, Brinkmanship, and that, that's exactly what happened with the rights for the Women's World Cup. It was, it was only two weeks before the actual World Cup, before broadcasting rights here were sorted out, weren't they, with... That, that was the case, and, and I think that's that was actually to the detriment of all parties because mm. neither of the the big domestic free to air broadcasters could put together a the World Cup's coming if because they didn't know until two weeks before yeah. whether they were yeah. the rights or not. Absolutely. So it, it sort of sort of sprung upon people. Whereas you know we know in a, in a men's World Cup year, we know in Olympics year, you start to ramp up interest and. Uh, you and I, I suspect, we're, we're not the only men of our generation who will still watch. You know, the BBC will always have a history of the World Cup yeah. tour, you know, television program yeah, yeah. on, and you'll watch it. And we we we, we still get excited by the black and white uh, you know, newsreels, even though we know the result 
<laughs> yeah, what's your problem with Brighton on match today last night? Is it they didn't show the whole ninety minutes? They showed other clubs. <laughs> they had the temerity to show Newcastle putting five past Villa. What, what was what was your issue? No, I, I had no issue. We were, we were top okay. of the Premier League for three hours. I'll take that. Yeah, you take that. We're in the Champions League spot at the moment. We'll exactly. Take, we'll, exactly. We'll, we'll take yeah, that as yeah. well. Uh, now, our next question, Kieran, is an unusual one in that it just happens to be pertinent to both Brighton and Palace at the moment. Yes. And it, it comes from Phil Chater. Um, and Phil says, if Club A speaks to Club B and says, we like your centre forward and will match his or her release clause... Does the player have to go to team A, whether he or she wants to or not? Now, this is a debate that Palace fans have been having about Michael Elise, uh, mm-hmm. the assumption being that if Man City would say, right, we trigger your release clause, he has to go. And it's um, similar with Caicedo, presumably. So is there a simple answer to this? Is the answer yes or no? Uh, the answer is no. There, um, yeah. there are. It's a tripartite arrangement. Uh, the selling club gives permission for the buying club to formally speak to the player. Although we know from again talking to our friend, you know, it sounds like we're sort of you know, we're trying to be ITK here, but we're not. You know, we, we, we do have friends who are agents, and they will say, "Well, the player will have been spoken to, or the player's agent will have been spoken to by the buying club to see a is the player." happy or the player willing to yeah. move and B, what are the expectations in, in terms of a financial package? Um, but the player is still at liberty to to, to say no. Yeah, as, as, we, as we always say, there's there's no I in threesome. And um, <laughs> we also, we don't always say that, Kieran. I've never said that. Now we won't go back to Moscow. Um, but there the the player is at liberty to to say to say no and and that's the that's the position actually appears to be in the case with with Moises Caicedo in that Brighton and Liverpool agreed a fee that was effectively announced you know via via some somebody releasing uh you know, Jurgen Klopp at a press conference was effectively saying yeah we we think we've signed him but the player says well actually I I'm, I'm reluctant uh, to, to move, or uh, should we say, the players of advisors, uh, because ha- have persuaded him to to not move. What's motivated the players' advisors to advise the player in such a manner? Um, heaven, heaven only knows. You know, but this this isn't a cynical show, so I'll, I'll go no further than that. Yeah, but the, no, but uh, you know, it, it could be that you are perfectly happy. You know, your your family's settled. You've got family. You like the environment. Uh, it's it's a it's an employment. Nobody can force somebody to move employer. I noticed that uh, Kai Shado's statement that uh, no, no, I've already promised Chelsea that I'd go to them. I noticed that didn't get repeated because uh, yes, that, that would that wouldn't be a good look because you're not supposed to do that, Moses. No, um, no. there are um, there are a thousand uh, tapping up is technically illegal in in English football, but there are a thousand ways. Uh, of doing it, um, and there's a book coming out on October the twelfth, Kieran, which gives you some helpful advice if you're <laughs> if you're if you're thinking of buying a football club and you want to know how to tap players up, um, the <laughs> unfit and improper persons is the book you need. Now, Carl Stewart has our next question, and this is a classic. <laughs> this is a classic blokes around a pub table, women around a pub table question. This is a sort of discussion you have when you've just lost one nil at home. And you don't want to talk about the actual game you've seen. 
So you, just, you, you, must, you must be six pints in, surely. You've got to be. You, you have to yeah. be six pints. You're quite right, Kieran. But it's a great question, and I'd be interested in your answer. Carl Stewart says, with the likes of Messi and Ronaldo coming to the end of their careers, I'm wondering if, say, one of them decided to finish their career lower down at perhaps Hartlepool or Barrow, how beneficial would it be to not only the club they signed for, but also the league? You think that every game would be a sellout wherever they played and kit sales would probably go through the roof. And Carl helpfully adds to the suggestion, I'm a Sunderland fan, not a Barrow or Hartlepool fan, in case you're wondering. To be honest, Carl, <laughs> the, the answer to that is, as much as we value your loyal listenership, I, I didn't spend much time wondering, but it's nice to know you're a Sunderland fan. Um, but yes. it's, I mean, this is a this is a this is a classic, a classic question, Kieran. You know, and there will always be optimistic Palace fans when Ronaldo was leaving Man United. Go, well, you never know. In the same way, they think, well, Jose Mourinho has always loved Palace. He's always talked about how much he loves the fans. Why would he not come here? Well, there's a million reasons why he wouldn't come here. Thornton Heath being one of them. But, you know, <laughs> crack on. <laughs> crack on. Crack on. Um, I live yes. there, so, you know, crack on with the answer. <laughs> well, I think this, you, you, uh, Carl is absolutely right. There, there would be a huge impact in terms of ticket sales, merchandise sales. Uh, every away match would be sold out from a curiosity perspective as you know, home fans get the opportunity to see players of that calibre. But I think you've got to look at in terms of scale. And if Barrow or Hartlepool are looking at their kit sales, they are probably selling merchandise in the region of 1,000 to 2,000 units. Hmm. Now, Manchester United have total revenue from kit sales of Seventy-seven million pounds. That's and even at the prices at which football kit is sold these days, um, that is an awful lot of units. So, could you increase Barrow's ticket sales from two thousand to ten thousand? Yes, you could. But how much does that make? You know, ten ten thousand times fifty quid. Do the sums. Take away your, your manufacturing costs. Take take away you know, distribution costs and so on. It doesn't make that much of a difference when you then factor in there would be an expectation from the player given that they are they can they can choose any club in the world um in terms of their remuneration package yeah cristiano ronaldo is estimated to be on somewhere between 150 to 200 million pounds a year that's outside of the budget of a, yeah. a club at a lower level so if if the player for some reason wanted as an experiment yeah and, and in in my daydreams and I day I still daydream every day about being a professional footballer <laughs> uh, I, I I am still still convinced that I I would quit the Premier League at 34 and then go and play for a non-league team to see how far I could take them in the FA Cup uh, and I and I do it for boot money if that and exes of course in cash uh, of course um, yeah. yeah but I I suspect that professional footballers uh, are probably slightly more realistic than I am. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think it's very kind of you to point out that Barrow or Hartlepool probably couldn't afford Messi or Ronaldo, Kieran. I, I've, yes. I think we all know this is probably the most rhetorical question we've ever been asked. To be yes. I remember Palace fans. We Palace fans lost their shit when we signed Edgar Davids. Uh, yeah, Lord, Lord knows what we'd be like if Ronaldo decided to slum it for the last year of his career. Uh, this next question from Joe Miller, Kieran, is an interesting. 
sort of sliding door moment question. Um, how much money did Aguero's title winning goal in 2012 and Troy Deeney's playoff goal in 2013 generate for their respective clubs in the short term and in the long term? Right. With regards to Aguero's goal in 2012, which I think is possibly still my favourite non-emotion, non-Brighton yeah, yeah. invested moment yeah. of, of the Premier League history, because I, I it, it was you know, Martin Tyler's commentary, the the sheer lunacy of, of it all taking place. It was classic theatre. Um, Manchester City lost uh, ninety nine million pounds that season. Wow! So. It, it helped, and that helped to reduce losses. But what you've got to do is you've got to say, well, let's look at it from the, 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 there's two elements here. What's the impact on revenue and what's the impact on costs? As far as increasing revenue, Manchester City were already selling out every single week at the Etihad, so they're getting no more money from ticket sales. As far as the broadcasting rights are concerned, in those days, for each one place higher up the league you got, you got an extra 1.5 million. Mm. So not not a lot. Would they have got a little bit more money from their sponsors for winning the tournament? Yes, but they already had a pretty lucrative tournament. So they didn't generate an awful lot of extra money. But Manchester City's wage bill, which contains bonuses, which are linked to winning trophies, and clearly the Premier League title was the, was the key one, um, was... Uh, was far outweighed the additional revenues. And in fact, that season, Manchester City became the first football team in Premier League history. And this is 2012, the first team in Premier League history to, to hit £200 million as a wage bill. And to put that in context, 20 years before that, in the very first season of the Premier League, Manchester City's wage bill was £4 million. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's just... Yeah, you know, inflationary sensationalism. So short term, no impact. Longer term, I, th- I think in Manchester City's ability to start to go out to second tier sponsors. So your, your first tier sponsor is going to be your, your kit manufacturer and your front of shirt deal. In, in terms of going out to second tier sponsors, say, look, you know, if, if, you spon- if you want to be our, our official snack partner, We've now got the Champions League for the next 12 months. Mm. Do you want your product next to it? So it certainly helped the club, um, but it, it didn't make a, a huge impact. If we then take a look at Watford in 2013, um, promotion to the Premier League via Troy Deeney's goal. And Troy Deeney is, is, is a player who I hugely admire. Mm. Um, Watford's revenue went up by a factor of five. So Manchester City got an extra you know, 2 or 3%. Watford an extra 500%. Uh, so it, it was transformative. But as we've seen, um, not just with Watford, but uh, also with Palace and also with Brighton, that you tend to make profit in your first year in the Premier League. So I, I was I was talking to uh, a chief executive, a finance director of the Premier League club, and they said, yeah, the, the first year they, we've got – think, look at our squad. We've got a squad of 25 who've come up. We probably get rid of four or five. We recruit four or five players for the Premier League. They are on higher wages. The players have got step-ups in contracts. But we can probably – we can probably have those players being absolutely delighted to be on 30 grand a week because – at the back of their minds, they're probably thinking, "Well, you know, we'll get thirty grand a week, and we'll be back in the championship in twelve months' time." So let's let's you know, it's happy days. 
If you then make it to your second season in the Premier League, you've got no more money coming in than before because your tickets, you can't pull up your ticket prices, particularly uh, the broadcast revenues are centrally agreed, the commercial arrangements, you've, you've signed a sponsorship deal for two or three years. So you've got no more money coming in. But the players' agents, that, that's when they come knocking on the door and they say, well, you know, my, my client was on £30,000 a week last season as a player who had just proved themselves to be worthy of playing in the Premier League. My client's now an established Premier League player. Your side, your club has avoided relegation. We want to have a chat about wages. And that 30 grand a week goes up to 50 grand a week. So all of a sudden, you've got your wage bill goes shooting up. You've got no more money coming in. And if we look at that in the context of Watford, and Watford always paid pretty yeah, they were always bottom six wages, often often bottom three wages in the Premier League. Watford had six seasons in the Premier League and they lost money mm. overall during that period. So it was transformative in terms of money coming in. But we then had the Alan Sugar impact or quote of you've got this prune juice effect. doesn't matter how much money you funnel into a business if you don't control your costs you're going to you're going to lose it and and we don't control costs because we we've just yeah you know, we're in the middle of this uh, sort of this attraction the obsession that people have ha- now have with the transfer market and the way that so many people's self-worth and this, this is something I I'm, does genuinely concern me so many people's self-worth in terms of being football fans is determined by the amount of money that the football club that they support spends yeah. during a transfer window and they they effectively live their lives through yeah we've only and I've, I've got Manchester United fans we, we've only spent 150 million pounds this summer isn't this a disgrace I'm going no, no it's not yeah. no, it's, it's about spending it well and, and I'm not going to go and play the Brighton card here because you know, that, that's too easy. But it's about it's about spending money smartly. But there, there is this very strange obsession about spending money. And of course, if you're spending large amounts on transfer fees, if, if I'm if I'm an agent and my clients just signed for a football club for sixty or seventy million, I'm going to say, well, you've got to have wages which are commensurate with that level of expenditure on the transfer fee. So, so you you get a ratchet up as far as wages are concerned. So. Both clubs actually ended up losing money. But I think it could be argued they would have perhaps lost a little bit more money had those achievements not been taking place in the first place. Uh, we've got the Palace fans who are going to have a nervous breakdown if we don't spend some money by the end, by the end of August. Uh, I'm halfway between. I want to spend some money, but I won't justify my self-worth because of it. But we need to spend some money, Parish. Speaking of Palace, this question did slightly confuse me because I know I had a lot to drink in Edinburgh, but I'm I'm fairly certain that we beat Watford in the playoff final in 2013. Uh, I was there. I, I'm 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 sure. I'll, I'll yes, double, you did. I'll double check. Yes, yeah. that was that was the yeah. Was, that, that was that was the year of the night of shame at the Annex, pr- slightly prior to you getting promoted. It, it, well, the night of glory, as we call it, Kieran. Yes. I, yes. Watford fans are still moaning about Zahar not diving for the penalty that Kevin Phillips scored. <laughs> um, our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Liam Colwick Jones, and I I ask this question, Kieran. I have to say, with some sadness, not not because it's not a good question. It's a very good question, but it's just what we seem to have done to. What I imagine used to be perfectly normal people that have now become obsessed with with the minutiae of football finance because of you, Kieran. 
I've tried to keep these people out of the clutches of Companies House, but I've not been able to do so. And Liam Colwick-Jones says, last year, my club, Gillingham, updated Companies House with information of a registration of charge. Now, a quick Google of what this... Oh, he's not that obsessed, is he? had to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Liam. A quick Google of what this means led me to believe, perhaps, that this could be something like a mortgage, but I'm not clear. Any help in getting clarity into the goings-on at Gillingham would be great. I have attached the document containing the info, which indeed he has, because in brackets it says, Doc Attached, PG. <laughs> um, which initially for well i don't i don't know why it needs a parental guide but of course it's producer guy but um yeah. so the document was attached so um don't let that stop you attaching documents everybody it's a, it's a good idea if you've got extra information that saves kieran looking it up so was it a mortgage it, it is the equivalent of a mortgage um if you are borrowing money from a financial institution, there are two ways of borrowing. First of all, you can borrow on what we refer to as an unsecured basis. And this means that should you default on your commitment to making scheduled repayments on scheduled dates, the bank will come after you and sort of have to go through a series of yeah, warning letters um, threatening to take you to court and so on. And it does mean that it's more of a pain in the backside. And I can remember taking out, you know, when I bought my first car, taking out an unsecured loan from the bank because I didn't have any property. I didn't have any assets as such. And it's no point the bank taking out a mortgage on a car because a car is an asset which decreases in value very quickly, especially if it's a, uh, it best described as a, a beige color uh mini metro um so you therefore end up paying some pretty severe rates of interest if the bank wants to reduce its risk and therefore the interest charge to the the borrower what it will do is it will issue this thing called a, a deed of debenture and, and and as um as as liam rightly pointed out it is a form of mortgage it is a it is a loan which is secured upon the assets of the football club. And there's two types of charge that you can have. There's what we refer to as a fixed charge, and a fixed charge is on a specific asset. And this is the closest analogy that we have in terms of a mortgage. If, if we go to a bank or building society as an individual and we take out a mortgage, we will sign a loan note in effect, and that will be secured on the property. And that means that should we fail to make due repayments on the due, due dates, the lender has the opportunity um, at some point in time to effectively call in the mortgage and to take possession of the asset and to sell that asset to recover the outstanding amount that is owed to them. As an alternative to that, or often in conjunction with that, we have what's referred to as a, as a floating charge. That's that's that's, uh, that's Finley just departing the room. I think he's I think he's, che I think he's checking right move just to see how much the house is worth. He's, he's looking at the small print on our mortgage. There. Um, so a, a floating charge is, uh, as it sort of the name implies it floats over all of your other assets so you think about you know the other assets i might own as an individual i might i might have you know, one computer or two computers i i might have you know two televisions or three televisions and they they tend to go up and down and also things such as cash 
And at a floating charge, what happens is if the bank is unhappy, the bank calls in the floating charge and it then crystallizes. And it then says, right, if you've got £2,100 in your bank account on the 14th of August 2023, that is now under our control. And you, But, but because that the value of your bank account goes up and down because the value of your other assets goes up and down the the mortgage effectively floats above all of your other assets and then it sort of crystallizes when the bank decides to call it in and the benefit that you get as a lender is that because the bank has a greater degree of certainty in terms of recovering the amount of money that it's lent, it's prepared to lend at a lower rate of interest. That's why, for example, if you take out a mortgage at present, you can probably get a mortgage. I'm not au fait with the market at present, but probably in the region of 5 to 6%. But if you borrow money on a credit card, and what are you doing there? Well, you know what are you buying on your credit card? Well, you're, you might pay for a meal on a credit card. You might pay for fuel on a credit card. Can you see that the bank can't get the fuel back or the or the meal back or wouldn't want to? Um, and therefore it it therefore says, well, we're taking on more greater risk, therefore we're going to charge you, you know, 21-22%, whatever the rates presently are, as far as credit card debt is concerned. Before our last question, Kieran, we have some sad news uh, to bring mm. you all. Uh, we learned this week of the passing away of Ben Harrison from the Tramia Rovers Supporters Trust who we spoke to on the show back in March 2021. Ben was a very, very nice chap, very enthusiastic and very passionate about Tranmere Rovers. We know Ben was a huge fan of the podcast and always listened every week. So we send massive love and condolences to his family and to his friends um, and, of course, to everybody at Tranmere Rovers who knew and loved Ben as well. Um, and our final question, Kieran, comes from Connor Gallagher. Probably not that one. Probably not. I was thinking the same. But uh, it's it's the nature of football fans that the very mention of Conor Gallagher's name will have Palace fans to it because the nightmare scenario, the made-up imaginary nightmare scenario. That's a tort- yes, I know it is. That's, yes. a, that's a tautology. But the, as soon as news came out that Caicedo was going to possibly to Chelsea, every single Palace fan went, well, that would be 80 million quid plus Conor Gallagher then, wouldn't it? That's because the the idea of seeing Conor Gallagher in a Brighton shirt has just put the heebie-jeebies up all of us. But Conor Gallagher has, I think, a very, very interesting question. And Conor says, has anyone ever done any economic projections on holding the men's and women's World Cup simultaneously with men's teams and women's teams playing alternate days? I think there would be multiple advantages to doing this. Players would get more rest, making for better performances and fewer injuries. A number of countries would be participating in both tournaments simultaneously, increasing fan engagement for those countries. And it would give a genuine boost to the Women's World Cup, increasing its popularity. I'm, I'm not sure it needs uh, more of a boost, mm. to be honest. Uh, the only I think this is a great idea. The only, I suppose, downside to it, although... Not particularly downside is that a World Cup would be twice as long as it already is. Yes, if, if you think about some of the senior competitions that take place in global sport, the Olympics is uh, you know, men's and women's. Yeah. You've got yeah. tennis tournaments, yeah. you know, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, the US Open. That's men's and women's taking place at the same time. So I think it can work, but I think you, you've raised the exactly the point that I've, I've scribbled down here on my mind map, Kevin is. 
we've got a World Cup which is increasing to 40 teams in 2026. So there's already you know, an extra 40 or 50 matches taking place. And the tournament is going to go, I think, from another week is being tagged on yeah. to the World Cup. If you're going to have a women's match and the matches are going to take place on alternate dates, realistically, we're looking at a tournament which is going to take 60 to 70 days to complete. Um, and I think the, the ramifications for that, especially you're going to have some countries which get knocked out in the group stage. So what are the fans of, of that country going to do? They're going to say, well, you know, our, our domestic competition is being delayed by three or four weeks. Um, for a World Cup competition in which we got knocked out after a week and a half. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that would give give the problems. I also think you raised a, a valid point. The, the, the Women's World Cup is, is big enough to to generate interest on its on its own merits, and and it's it's a different game in in many regards. You know, it, it, from a, from a technical from a tactical perspective, I think we're uh, and it's. It attracts a different demographic in terms of fan base, mm. in terms of sponsors, and it's actually so good that it doesn't need a hand, you know, a, a lift up from the men's game anymore. And I, and I know when I speak to some of the people, women in the football, they say we're just getting a bit fed up of the constant comparisons yeah, to, to men's football. Of course, um, often comparisons from uh, should we say the the dinosaur element of yeah. uh, the football fan base. Uh, yeah, I. I said something about the lionesses on social media, and, she said, and somebody says, I- "I'm I'm fed up of it of it being people trying to ram it down my throat." So I go, "Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know about you, but see, I've I've got no particular interest in Formula One. So what I do, I, I've got on my television remote control the ability to watch <laughs> other channels, and uh, I, I, you know, it, it could it could be it could be a, a life changer for the person to whom I was communicating. But I just yeah. felt it, it, it right. If you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. But it's not it's not being forced that we we live in you know, you and I are both old enough to to remember when Channel Four started. Oh. I, I remember I was I was in university at the time in nineteen eighty two and it was oh my god, we got choice of four channels. Yeah, you know, I practically had a nosebleed with the yeah. with the extent. Uh so we've got twenty four hour television these days. We've got hundreds, if not thousands, of channels. You are not being forced fed anything. But Women's World Cup, the the, the quality of the, the 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 sport is so good that it, it doesn't need to be combined. And, and, and another concern that I would have is because there is a skewing of interest from the media, and I understand what, yeah, ultimately everybody's chasing clicks and so on, because there's a skewing of interest towards the men's game, is that if there were matches taking place on alternate dates, then if, if we had some men's matches taking place on the Monday, the Tuesday would be spent with the the post-mortems into the men's games and yeah, the women's games yeah. taking place on those days wouldn't get the appropriate amount of attention that they deserve. Mm. Do you know what the first programme on Channel 4 was? Oh, no. Countdown. Oh, was it? It was. Countdown was the very first programme on Channel 4 and Kenneth Williams was in Dictionary Corner. Um, and Wow. Another question for you, Kieran. You know who would be really, really upset about a simultaneous World Cup? Groundsman. Oh, oh yes, and as they, I say groundsmen quite confident. I was going to say grounds people, but it's not. They're, they're all men, so far as I know, at the moment. Imagine the groundsmen at Villa Park being told, "We've got a World Cup coming." What on my pitch? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and not only that, you've got two World Cups coming. What on my pitch? They would, 
it doesn't take much to upset a groundsman, Kieran, as we know. Well, our, our groundsman friend from Leicester, he's just moved to Manchester City, isn't he? I, and I, and that, it's, a, it's a big, big announcement. Yeah, that I, was, and he was absolutely brilliant when he came on the show. I learned so much. Yeah, Kieran, I have to say, if it happened when I was in Edinburgh, I don't know about it. <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you we got a four-star review in uh, Edinburgh Life, but I can't tell you anything that happened in the news in the past four days. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind of you. You could do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with our news update. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell, which I imagine will be quick because he's got a train to catch on a Sunday. <laughs> I do indeed. Yes, thank you as always for your support for the show um, and also quite a few of you who have been in contact to to put me right where well, I think we did with, we did the nostalgia shows. I made some pretty big errors by all accounts uh, in terms of the uh, the valuations. So, so I, I will try to clarify those in future. Um but there's there's a variety of ways you can support the show, and uh, we, we we're not in a position to give the exact location as yet. But uh, the the unfit and improper persons book is coming out mm-hmm. on October the twelfth, mm-hmm. and uh, we will be appearing at a literary festival mm-hmm. on that day and having a live price of football show. So keep keep your keep your diaries empty. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, for me it will be going back to an old haunt i'll say no more than that. <laughs> um, but there's another way you can support the show and, and that's to give us a review uh on on social media via your app by all accounts it doesn't matter what you say i think it's the number of reviews that counts it helps us with the algorithms it helps us uh appear in the charts against some fairly big hitters and you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Troy Deeney and Kenneth Williams. And I think that would be a fantastic listen. Do you know what? That's my favourite combination so far. That would, better be, that would be a really interesting one, wouldn't it? Yes. If we could make we can't, we can't make it happen for well, obvious reasons, <laughs> but, but that would be a really interesting one. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Buy some football.